Hello, you're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, here as always with David Scott. Fantastic to be back again. And our, yeah, it's a second show this week, uh, a special edition uh, uh, that we recorded yesterday with uh, Treasurer Scott Morrison, which you can tune into. But our guest for this show, our regular show, um, is senior economist at the CBA, Christina Clifton. It's her first time on the show. Christina, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. Um, I know some of your research uh, is uh, is excellent, and you've um, put out some great stuff this week, uh, particularly around the national accounts. Um, so um, I'm looking forward to chatting about that. Quickly, want to talk about global picture, Dave? On markets, a few wobbles uh, this week again. We thought Italy had gone away, but uh, but no, no, Italy's not going to go away for a while either. Um, particularly with the um with what's going on with the ECB, and they're talking about uh, the, all the speculations now mounting that they're going to announce an end of their asset purchase program by the end of uh, this year at some point. That's what people are saying. They meet next week, so we'll find out the answer to that shortly. Um, so who's going to be the uh, buyer for Italian bonds under such a scenario? Uh, it be a very good question. So uh, that will have ramifications not only for Italy, but also broader uh, financial markets, particularly emerging markets, in my opinion. And and in terms of emerging markets, Brazil this week has uh, started looking shaky. And we were talking about this earlier, and uh, you made the point that, look, some kind of instability, political or economic instability in Brazil is nothing, nothing new. Uh, but at the same time, the real, I just checked figures earlier, real is down 25% this year against the dollar. Uh, Brazilian bonds are soaring, uh, bond yields uh, rather. Um, so, um, and the stock market has been tanking. Um, so it's kind of looking a bit shaky there. And adding to this EM question mark, hey? It is, and this is the uh, era of QT or approaching QT when ECB starts uh, pulling back liquidity and the uh, Bank of Japan is probably unlikely to go and do it, but uh, it's been pretty steady recently. The Fed's already embarked on quantitative tightening. Uh, so we're now getting a, a snapshot of what uh, true asset valuations are, and uh, obviously uh, the longer that, uh, that, that this process goes on, I think the more likelihood that we'll see volatility. The news out of uh, Brazil last night, I know, Political dysfunction is par for the course in most places in South America. I think most people can probably uh, know attest to, and you know that was a catalyst to go and spark a reversal in risk assets from what we'd seen the previous two sessions. So, something to go and keep an eye on in the uh, in the not too distant future. Okay, so market volatility not notwithstanding, uh, one of the big themes of the past maybe 24 months in global markets, Christina has been or in, in the global economy has been really how good things have been. Most uh, advanced economies certainly doing pretty well, um, and uh, emerging markets too. Uh, just expansion all over, you know, we've talked about, we will talk about uh, PMIs a bit later in the show because the CBA has um, a really interesting new series of, of those uh, on a monthly basis. But uh, PMIs, if you looked at them around the world, everything was uh, was pointing to expansion in uh, in all of the markets that they covered. Um, so uh, across advanced and, and emerging economies. Um, and we've come through this period where um, global growth has been pretty solid and pretty uniform. And the global sy- synchronized uh, upswing, I think everybody was referring to it as. There's been a little bit to- of talk lately about how maybe this is starting to feel a bit late cycle and that that may, you know, with the Fed withdrawing that its stimulus, the ECB withdrawing its stimulus, that this may be changing the picture a little bit. Uh, what's your view? 
Yeah, so yeah, you're right. We have had a very strong period of global growth and we've seen uh, that synchronised global upturn underway. Uh, we still see the global economy as, as fairly strong. It's still definitely expanding, but uh, you can see that that pace of expansion's definitely slowed uh, and things have been a little bit softer this year in some countries in particular. Uh, so we saw a bit of a slowdown uh, in the US economy earlier in the year. Sort of those Q1 numbers uh, were a little bit on the weaker side, uh, but fortunately we've seen quite a strong rebound back in the US economy in the second quarter. All the sort of partial data that we have um, <clears throat> had out so far are, are looking pretty solid and sort of pointing to uh, a decent lift in the economy in, in the second quarter in the US. Uh, but if you look in some of the other regions, particularly Europe and also the UK, and Japan too, there's been sort of a bit of a, a slowdown in growth. Uh, so some of the European data has been a little bit on the softer side. Uh, the ECB, they don't seem too concerned about that. They've, um, you know, they're still talking about uh, the, the fact that inflation's picking up and they're talking about well, at this next meeting, we think they'll be talking about giving us some sort of different forward guidance and talking about the uh, reduction in those asset purchases. So they still uh, have a positive view of, of their own economies. Uh, Japan, though, that's looking particularly weak. We had some uh, GDP data out just recently. Uh, we saw a significant downward revision to the fourth quarter growth numbers. And, and for the first quarter, we saw a negative rate of growth. Uh, so if we get another quarterly uh, negative growth rate in Japan, that means Japan is back in, in a recession. Uh, and last year we were talking about uh, the Japanese economy booming. So there's been quite a, a shift in the picture there. That's right. We had this huge run of jobs growth. It's been stretching back years. Unemployment at something like something crazy like 3%. Sub 3%. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's been an amazing run for, for Japan. Um, uh, but what do you think is the, the factors affecting Japan uh, at the moment in terms of the, the what, what are the headwinds for it? Well, it's trade exposed for a start, which obviously is, uh, is something that you've got to go and consider that uh, no, trade trade flows have definitely softened uh, in early this uh, this year. That's uh, no, obviously they're highly exposed to both the US and, uh, and Chinese economies that they're two biggest trading partners, like most other countries as well. Um, the other thing, obviously, that uh, that Japan is going to be serially battling over the next uh, next years and decades is uh, is their demographics. You know, you've got a shrinking population. So when you've got a shrinking population, you've got to try and find a way to go and boost real GDP through productivity gains. Uh, at the moment, uh, obviously, they've had some uh, success there, but no, more recently, obviously, the data's been a little bit softer. And obviously, you know, being such a still a huge part of the global economy, it's still the third. And I think for a long time, it was Australia's largest trading partner and. Uh and uh, only recently, I think, displaced by China. Yeah, definitely. They're, yeah. they're Australia's second largest uh, and, and still by quite some distance. So obviously it's uh, it's important to go and watch what's happening in, uh, in Japan. But obviously when it comes to when we talk about Australia, no, there's only one real nation that uh, is, is something that's going to go and determine the be-all and end-all, and that's uh, its neighbour to, uh, to the East China. So, Christina, this leads us really nicely into what we saw this week uh, Australia's astonishing economy does it yet again, 3.1% uh, year-on-year growth. Uh, obviously, trade being a big part of that. Um, what what was driving the, um, uh, the the uplift that we saw? Yeah, so those those first quarter GDP numbers were very strong. We had a 1% uh, lifting the quarterly growth rate. Um, so that was a very good outcome. And as you said, annual rate of 3.1%, and that's above our sort of long run trend rate of growth, which we estimate to be around two and three quarters. Uh, the good thing there is that uh, the growth was very broad based in the economy in the quarter. So if we look at all the sort of major categories of growth, 
consumer spending, business investment, uh, government spending and also ex- net exports, uh, they all contributed to growth in the quarter. Uh, net exports made a com- uh, particularly large contribution of uh, 0.6 percentage points uh, and that's because we're seeing a strong ramp up now in our LNG export volumes. Yeah, commodity prices are firm. Uh, and we're seeing this, like you said, this, uh, did I see, read somewhere recently that Australia could be, um, I think, David, you wrote this, Australia could be the world's number one exporter of LNG at some point? Yeah, that yeah. could be as soon as next year. It, and whether it lasts that way, it's, uh, I think the US is probably going to be coming uh, very, uh, very quickly up behind. But uh, no, it's no, the, the next uh, no story of the Australia's resources boom. You know, obviously, we're well known for having iron ore. We're well known for having uh, lots of coal. Now, obviously, LNG is going to be providing tailwinds for at least another couple of years, uh, you know, just through purely more exports being uh, sent offshore. The the strength that in the um, global economy that we were talking about over the last couple of years, obviously some more supportive for commodity prices. If we've got some of this, um, some of these questions arising now over um, the future state of global growth, do you think that um, maybe poses a bit of um, uh, a question over that the exports contribution to to Australian growth over over the medium term. Yeah. So, um, in terms of uh, the the GDP numbers that we had reported this week, so they report sort of volumes. So the commodity price story uh, doesn't come into those volume figures, uh, but it comes into into our nominal GDP numbers. And when we get those numbers about our trade balance, you definitely see the the impacts of swings in commodity prices there. Uh, and we do expect commodity prices to pull back a little bit. They have been at, at a high level for quite some time, but we just think as the Chinese economy just slows a little bit uh, and as they sort of transition from, uh, you know, um, boosting their economy through infrastructure spending and that sort of thing more towards an economy like ours with more services. Uh, we're going to see less of a demand for, for our commodities and that should see a little bit of a, a pullback in commodity prices. Uh, but one uh, thing we've uh, been seeing this year is the oil price has been very high uh, and that's now actually uh, good for Australia because our uh, we're exporting a lot of LNG now and the price of LNG is linked to that oil price. So those higher oil prices will deliver our stronger revenue uh, to us through that avenue. Right, so um, it'll sure be interesting to watch them. Uh, you know, they've, they've built all of these enormous plants, all that huge capex that went in uh, many, many years ago now. Uh, but uh, it's all starting to come online, and uh, it's going to be uh, obviously very important part of the of the economic picture um, over the years ahead. Um, I want to also quickly look at the um, household consumption. Um, so. This has been something the RBA has talked about repeatedly um, on a monthly basis uh, over um, this year. In the the statement they talk about in the annual, sorry, in the monthly rate statement they talk about, it could be the only one. It's, it's so little change recently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, the old um, control C, control V, getting a good workout in, uh, in, uh, in in Martin Place. But look, um, th- there were a couple of changes in the statement this uh, this month. Um, but one of the things they have, and we'll get to those, but one of the things they have been calling out is this risk to household consumption. So uh, again, weakish number uh, in there uh, for, I think, 0.2 uh, percentage points of the one. Um, so uh, not exactly a bullion. Um, and uh, I think, like I said, you know, when we were talking with the Treasurer yesterday, sure, headline rate is 3% and a little bit more, 
but probably a lot of people don't feel like it's anything like that. Uh, what's your take on this, yeah, sure. Christine? I'm, I'm fascinated. Yeah, so, um, yeah, we did see a lift in consumer spending in the first quarter, but it wasn't a particularly strong increase. Uh, but it did actually come on the back of a very strong increase in the fourth quarter. So if you sort of average out those numbers, it doesn't look as sort of weak as that first quarter number suggests. And over the year, we've still got growth in consumer spending of nearly 3%. Um, so that's, I guess, a moderate rate of spend, spending, nothing um, spectacular at all but not particularly weak. Um, but there are just a lot of risks around consumer spending and the RBA has uh, said that they see that as one of the sort of key risks to the domestic outlook, just how consumers are going to fare uh, in the current environment where we've got very high levels of household debt but also very weak wages growth. Uh, so there's, you know, that consumers have those headwinds to face and they've also had some big increases in electricity prices last year to deal with. Uh, and we now, uh, we know that we've also got a lot of household households kind of rolling off interest-only loans onto principal and interest loans, uh, and that can lift your mortgage repayments by, you know, something in the order of 30%. So for some households, they'll have uh, that issue to deal with well as well. So there are a lot of headwinds for the consumer. Yeah, so um, you know, like those non-discretionary items, um, you know, and we've seen the RBA talk about this, but, you know, just chewing up uh, a, an increasing proportion of household spend. Um, and I think one of the other things is um, private health insurance uh, went up uh, in March. Premiums went up 7%, I think, again. Um, uh, but And there was a Roy Morgan survey uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was really interesting. Uh, and it found that they, their survey, um, they extrapolating the numbers from their survey, where they served thousands of people, they think that a, a quarter of a million people uh, quit their health insurance, their private health insurance this year. Now, there's APRA data on um, the numbers of people contributing to the private health funds. Um, and that fit, that that data to March, um, it, it was published a few weeks ago, and I had a look at it, and there wasn't, I was kind of curious to see if there had been a big, you know, uh, turned down or a flatlining in, uh, in the number of people signed up for private health insurance. But it, Turned out not to be the case. Maybe we'll see that in the next quarter's data. But these things still keep, they appear to just keep coming, like households, uh, just, you know, whether it's wages growth, um, electricity prices, um, oil prices now, so petrol, petrol prices coming in, basically being um, a small tax on, on households, um, just seems to be relentless. I'm curious um, about on the retail side. All right, so... Retail industry, an awful lot of challenges there. Um, so met cash this week, uh, $350 million uh, impairment that they're going to book uh, for this financial year. Um, so all of, but there's this price deflation in a lot of retail categories, which is affects the discretionary side. I'm wondering how you, how do you think about that sort of help that the price wars give consumers in this environment? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we do hear a lot about uh, the price wars and how there's sort of very weak inflation in some categories, particularly those sort of retail goods. But, uh, you know, it has to be seen as a positive thing for consumers in, in this environment where wages growth is low. Uh, it's, it's actually a good thing that we are seeing that sort of extra competition. Uh, we are seeing that sort of discounting and lower prices in some of those sort of uh, essential sort of retail goods like clothing and also food as well. It's 
that's definitely uh, helped to consumers that the prices of some of those goods have uh, become relatively cheaper compared to some of the services. So it's mm. absolutely of a, of a benefit. Yeah, um, and it's I suppose there's an important attendant question is, that comes with it, which is what it does to the retail sector, which is such a huge employer. Um, so um, just quickly on that, the minimum wage increase uh, would be... Uh, uh, which was, uh, I think, it was three and a half percent. Three and a half percent. You know, again, um, you know, another very significant increase. You know, Australia already the highest minimum wage in the world, uh, in the developed world. Uh, so we're, we're going to see, you know, this uh, yet again. I think, you know, very positive. Um, so, and Stephen Kukulis wrote on uh, in a piece for for Business Insider this week that uh, higher pay tends to be associated with higher levels of employment if you look back over the last sort of 15 years in Australia. So that's going to be certainly interesting, uh, which leads us into the jobs numbers uh, coming out next week. Uh, what are you looking out for? Yeah, so uh, we have the employment report coming out next Thursday and that will give us data for the month of May. Uh, so we think we'll get another sort of fairly solid increase in the number of jobs, probably something around 20,000, uh, and that should sort of keep the unemployment rate where it is at 5.6%. Uh, another interesting uh, piece of data that we'll get in that report that we get on a quarterly basis is numbers on the underemployment rate. Uh, so they've been uh, something that the RBA has been looking very closely and, and economists more generally. Uh, as you've seen that underemployment rate go up, we've seen wages growth come down. So they seem to have quite quite a close relationship. So I guess we'd be hoping to see uh, that underemployment rate start to come a little bit down a little bit. So hopefully we can start to see some wages pressures, but that we still might be a little bit of a way off that given that the unemployment rate's still, you know, s- sticking where it is around five and a half percent. Yeah, we talk about it being maybe four uh, as a number where you'd convince, you know, be confident that you'd start to see the type of tightness in the labour market that David, the treasurer, you were just uh, you were talking to uh, about on this show just twenty four less than twenty four hours ago. Yes, the light, the tightness in the labour market apparently. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I completely agree. I, I I like these quarterly reports, and I think that uh, from memory, I think the ABS is looking to go and introduce a, a monthly measure of underemployment. Uh, uh, to go and give us a bit of a snapshot as to you know, the a broader slack in the labour market. Obviously, underemployment is basically trying to track people who already have a job but who would like to work more hours. Uh, it's been trending higher. Uh, and it has, it's not at its peak, uh, post-GSC peak at the moment, but it has been trending higher you know, over that period. Uh, so obviously, that's had a big impact. You know, there, there's lots of people out there who could potentially go and work more, but at the moment are not finding the work there. And that's keeping uh, an abundance of, uh, of workers available for employees to uh, employers to go and, and utilise. And at the moment, there's no real pressing demand, at least from what you're seeing in the wage data, to, uh, to go and offer bigger uh, pay incentives. Uh, certainly going to be uh, another interesting data point to look at uh, next week. The other thing that's uh, out next week is housing finance, uh, which we'll talk about next. You're listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. Our guest this week is Christina Clifton, Senior Economist at the Commonwealth Bank. Now, housing finances out next week. The thing that everybody's talking about at the moment, uh, you, you know, it used to be a couple of years ago, or even 18 months ago in, in Sydney, you couldn't um, scratch yourself without running into a conversation about property prices uh, rising at crazy rates. Uh, now the conversation is all about property prices going the other way. Um, So 4% plus down across the Sydney market over the last year. Um, Some patches looking 
potentially, like there's some indicators that there are discounts much more than that um, going on in the market. Uh, Christina, fascinated to hear uh, your view on uh, where this is going and, uh, and how it might play out. Yeah, it's, it's always uh, hard to sort of to to give some definite answers of how uh, things are going to play out in the property market. Uh, but we're thinking that prices will keep falling probably for at least sort of the next 18 months or so. So we've clearly sort of seen a shift um, in sentiment towards housing. That sort of seemed to happen uh, just uh, around the time that uh, APRA put those changes in place that limited uh, lending on an interest-only basis. So that really saw a lot of uh, investors pull back from the, from the housing market and they were a real uh, driving force in Sydney and Melbourne. So the fact that they've now sort of pulled back um, is, is one of the factors behind uh, the reason that, that prices are now falling. Uh, we think Sydney prices will probably keep falling over the next couple of years. We've got a, they're down around 4% now from their peak in the middle of last year. Uh, our forecasts have them down uh, by a total of 10% uh, for this cycle and probably a little bit less in Melbourne. We think the other capital cities will probably, prices will trend broadly sideways. Uh, so there are a number of, of, of other factors at play there. First of all, we're not very unlikely to get any more RBA rate cuts. Uh, so the fact that the RBA have been cutting rates for the for the past sort of pretty much since the GFC, that was a big uh, boost to the property market. But we're certainly not going to see any more rate cuts unless there's some sort of serious downturn in the economy. Uh, so it takes out that uh, factor that has pushed up prices. Uh, yeah, also, even the expectation that rates yeah, might go absolutely. lower, yeah, I think now yeah. The, the expectation is that if anything, uh, rates will go up rather than down. Uh, so that's that's been turned around there. Uh, we've also seen a bit of a turnaround in the level of foreign interest in Australian property. So for many years, we had a lot of foreign demand for our property, uh, but there's been some changes. Uh, we had some uh, extra stamp duties put on uh, in New South Wales and Victoria. So that's helped to cool that foreign demand. Uh, and we've also seen some policy changes in China that was res uh, restricting money flowing out of their economy. Uh, and that's that's helping to um, dampen that foreign demand as well. So all those factors just mean that we'll probably see prices continue to drift lower for a while. Because you know, sorry, I was just cutting. I was, how much of a threat do you think that falling property prices, particularly you know, when we talk about falling property prices, we're generally talking about Sydney and Melbourne in this sort of cycle. Most people are saying that's where the centre of the sun decline will be. Given the low wage growth we're seeing at the moment, and you know, we saw household savings in the national accounts, you know, four to two point one percent of income. Uh, so quite narrow uh, there. Adding on top of that, your biggest store of wealth for many, many households is falling in value, even after a strong rise. Do you reckon that's a threat uh, no, to, to the consumer outlook? You know, will people go and be more sensitive to price falls now than what they were in the past when prices were rising? Yeah, it definitely is um, a risk to the outlook and it's another sort of uh, factor that's probably weighing on people's minds. Uh, so far, we haven't sort of seen a pullback in spending uh, so far based on the house price falls that we have had. Uh, people probably, I think the general population probably knew that house prices had perhaps like run ahead of perhaps where they would be. Uh, and even if we were to get sort of a, a fall in the order of 10% that we have been talking about, it's still only going to take prices back to where we were 
at the end of 2006. So if you've been in the property market sort of more than a couple of years, you're still you're still ahead. So I guess that's probably uh, the picture people are, are seeing as well. So uh, certainly it's not going to be great for people that have bought more recently, but for people that have been in there for a while, uh, it's probably not a huge factor, particularly while we've got, uh, you know, the, the jobs market isn't, uh, you know, the unemployment rates still stuck around that five and a half percent mark uh, but we we do have strong jobs growth at the moment so that's sort of supporting household yeah people feeling uh, reasonably uh, reasonably good I think there was one interesting little data point that I saw uh, during the week and we used to look at this because the ABS used to do it and because of some of their funding constraints they cut it it's it a kind of way of saying it yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, it was car sales um, if you remember these through vehicle sales now uh, the uh, one of the industry bodies, VFACTS, uh, does this, and they had a uh, they published some data I think week before last, uh, and it showed um, car sales down year on year just two percent. So just one of those things that maybe you know the, I think there's a couple of things involved in there. One was this um, the previous year. Uh, probably some demand helped by um, the asset write-off that federal um, budget the fe- that was in the federal budget. So you could, you know, um, you could buy a Ute for your small business and um, and um, write it off for up to twenty thousand um, dollars, which just helped probably a few people go. Oh look, I'll, I'll, now's the time to buy. Um, but traditionally, that would have been seen as one of the little indicators of you know sort of the health of um, of things. And look, let's say car sales are off. Two percent house prices are off. You know, a few percent in Sydney, uh, nationally being flat. Um, probably signs that you know the things that you kind of see playing out on the ground: wages growth being low, uh, and unemployment moving broadly sideways, uh, hovering around in that two and a half percent. But things are kind of going okay. Jobs are being created. Uh, businesses going all right, you know. Um, so it's certainly going to be uh, an interesting year. Um, the Cook who. Uh, who I referenced earlier has a, a, a good phrase for this, which is that the economy is just muddling through, um, you know, which is one way to put it. Like if if one part of the economy seems to be a little bit slack, something else always seems to come in and uh, and pick it up a little bit, be it non-mining investment or, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, other levers that yeah. pull. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the June accounts because out of the composition that we saw that one percentage point increase, the uh, we had... 0.2 percentage points come from business inventories. We had 0.4 percentage points come from trade, and we had uh, 0.2 uh, from government. So that's 0.8 of a percentage point of the one percent. Uh, the government looks like no, it's continuing to go and roll out donor expenditure. But no, people who follow the national accounts closely know that when a bigger lift in inventories goes and boosts GDP, what tends to happen next time is that the kinds of reverses. Uh, and whilst I'm not saying that the same thing is going to happen with uh, with a commodity store and a commodity exports, to say that we're going to go get another sizable, you know, nearly half a percentage point increase from net trade is probably a little bit uh, optimistic too. So it does mean that the uh, the household sector in particular will have to go and probably you know do a bit more heavy lifting this time to go and you know, see a figure that's even sort of you know, around about 0.7, 0.8 of a, of a percent. Sure, it'll certainly be interesting. Uh, I think for anybody who's inter- who's interested in taking a deep dive on uh, the national accounts. Uh, Christina uh, and the team at the CBA, uh, Christina sent it out this week. It's a 
huge chart pack that goes into a whole bunch of details uh, on the national accounts. Um, uh, did you, pretty, do, pretty do you have to do that yourself, Christine? How many, how many people were oh, helping? We had, that was we had a, three people working on that. Still took us a few hours. I can imagine. It was, uh, it was epic. <laughs> Nothing like budget night, though. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, look, uh, absolutely a huge uh, uh, deep dive into the, into the accounts and uh, really well uh, worth your while. Okay, um, one other thing. We were talking about leading indicators a little bit uh, uh, earlier in terms of car sales, etc. And this is, I'm glad we got somebody from uh, CBA on the show to talk uh, a bit about this, but CBA has started off, uh, has started up a um, purchasing managers index uh, series of surveys. Uh, now, uh, for those of you who um, read and listen regularly, you probably be familiar with um, PMIs, but uh, David, do you want to just quickly go over PMIs, why they matter, how they work? Purchasing managers index. Is, uh, is the long form of PMI, uh, and it's basically a diffusion index that goes and measures you know, change in activity levels from one month to the next. So anything above 50 indicates that uh, no activity is expanding. The greater distance away from 50, the more it's, uh, it's increasing. And of course, if it's sub 50, you know, the further away, the quicker that activity is, uh, is declining. So generally speaking, uh, if you want to see you no know, healthy uh, outlook for economic growth and whatnot, uh, you want to go and see a, a plus 50 reading uh, and substantially higher than 50. Uh, it just looks at a whole lot of various things like uh, you know, orders, sales, uh, and supply deliveries. So it just gives you an indication of not quite in re- uh, real time, but obviously you know, as, as close to real time as you can get is what's happening in a various sector. And what it does is it tends to give you, because um, GDP uh, and some of the measures that are c- um, published by the ABS and the official data tend to be lagging indicators. So, of course, we, we've just had the, the March quarter data, which to- tells us what happened between January and Correct. March. Um, and, you, and, and we've seen, uh, to, to give a real life example, we've seen uh, in uh, Europe, uh, we saw that the PMI started going to come off in February and in March. And then lo and behold, what happened then was that they were still in positive territory, so they're still expanding. But the, uh, the growth that was reported in like, the likes of Germany was weaker than what it was in the prior quarter. So that does give you some sort of snapshot as to what to expect in the, uh, the hard data, as we call it, in the, uh, the next couple of months. So, and uh, I mentioned to Christina just before we came on the show, but probably one of the things that convinced me about the importance of PMIs uh, was a chart a few years ago from Jared Minak where he showed the incredibly tight relationship between the rate of uh, GDP growth in China and Australia's PMIs. Uh, so that basically to explain that, um, you know, what's happening in Australia uh, is incredibly, in, in down on the ground level in industry is, uh, is very closely related to um, demand from China, uh, which you know at a high level, but uh, it's a good way of showing it in the data. So, Christina, You've got these uh, these new surveys out. You've got, uh, I think, is it probably a couple of years of data now uh, yeah, in them? Yeah, a couple and, of years yeah. of data. That's right. Uh, so, and you've got them for manufacturing and uh, services sector. Um, so, maybe you can tell us um, a bit about them, the methodology, um, and, and the types of questions you ask in them. Yeah, yeah. So, they're, they're two separate surveys. Uh, one of the uh, services uh, firms and one of manufacturing firms. So, each of the surveys uh, surveys. 400 different businesses, uh, the same businesses each month. Uh, and they, they ask a whole range of questions, uh, just basically trying to capture how businesses are seeing current economic conditions, but then also their expectations of, of uh, 
demand for their uh, goods and services going forward as well. Uh, they also ask questions around employment, whether uh, companies are planning to employ more people or not. And there's also questions around sort of price pressures as well. So they try to capture like a broad range of, of factors just capturing business conditions basically. Yeah, so it'll, it'll tell you a bit about prices, uh, job creation, um, it'll tell you about demand uh, and a bit of confidence as well, I suppose, in terms of forward orders, all of that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. So you do them across manufacturing. Uh, let's start with that. Um, what's that saying at the moment? Yeah, so uh, that manufacturing index, it's sitting above that sort of 50 level. So it's telling us that the manufacturing uh, industry is expanding. Uh, the number came back a little bit in the month of May, the latest reading that we have, but it's still sort of firmly above that 50 level. Uh, it does sort of line up with what the other data is telling us uh, in those quarterly GDP numbers we just had. Uh, we have a breakdown of GDP uh, by different sectors and that told us that manufacturing was the second fastest growing uh, sector over the past year. Uh, so it's, uh, I guess there's a, a number of factors behind that, but within manufacturing, one of the areas that's growing quite quickly is food manufacturing. Uh, so that's uh, manufactured food products for use here in Australia, but also exporting a lot of uh, food products yeah, as right, well. Which is, is that a big story at the moment? Is that the yeah. biggest sector, subsector in, in the manufacturing industry do you know if this um, I don't know for sure that I'd have to look that up but it's it's one of the fastest growing ones at the moment okay understand yeah yeah because with uh, certainly with with uh, Ch um, the Chinese demand for Australian clean and green products etc uh, you know a lot of new businesses uh, have grown up out of that I mean if you think about it, like a2 milk uh, the black Blackmore story uh, all of that um, yeah, you know uh, so they've been driven by that so um, so food manufacturing is going well um, yeah, yeah yeah absolutely and so yeah overall that manufacturing uh, activity is expanding and you tend to find that manufacturing activity can be a little bit of a leading indicator of growth in the economy more generally. It tends to be quite cyclical. Uh, so the fact that we've seen a pickup in that manufacturing activity uh, suggests that we'll probably continue to get sort of good growth in the economy uh, over the next couple of quarters. And then services, right? So the giant yeah, the giant beast services sector, that is the services sort of, sector. Yeah, makes up sort of something around 70% of the economy. Mm. Um, again, we had uh, that index as well into uh, above that uh, level of 50. I think we're at 55.9 in May. Uh, that's the highest uh, level that we've had for, for about 10 months now. And you can see that's been sort of trending higher over the past couple of months. Uh, so again, businesses seem quite positive about conditions overall, uh, also have sort of quite positive expectations for uh, future output going forward. Uh, also still that jobs component, still in positive territory. It has sort of pulled back a little bit from earlier in the year. Uh, but that's probably be, to be expected. We had really strong jobs growth last year. We probably can't see that pace of jobs growth continue, uh, but still in positive territory. So that's a good thing. Uh, and we've also seen some, just starting to see some signs of inflationary pressures. Um, businesses are reporting stronger I, input costs. I happen to have the paragraph in front of me because I oh, remember when I go. saw it during the week, I stopped what I was doing was walking through Wynyard. <laughs> I stopped and read it twice. Uh, so I've got it in front of me. It says, lastly, on the price front, input cost inflation accelerated to a five-month high amid reports of higher labor, fuel, and utility expenses. Uh, now, this is the kicker. Some survey respondents noted that demand conditions were resilient enough to withstand higher prices and, as such, passed greater cost burdens onto their clients. Pricing power. That is pricing power. Uh, people are just, hang on a second, I can put up my prices. Now, that is on you. That 
if you think about the overall picture in the Australian economy over the last couple of years, that's pretty unusual. So um, green shoots, whatever you want to call it, but definitely some signs that uh, uh, maybe there's tightness enough in some sectors uh, for people to start jacking up the prices and that uh, and that customers are going to be okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. Just some first signs that we might be starting to see stronger inflation. Um, on the wages front as well, uh, we know wages growth is still low, but uh, you know, looking in these surveys, again, we're just seeing some small signs that that, that picture might be starting to turn around. Uh, that shows up in our own internal data as well. We have data on wages and salaries going into CBA accounts. Uh, and again, we're seeing that just starting to turn up too. So it could be that we're going to just start to see a little bit of a turnaround in that official data. Certainly be keeping an eye on it uh, very closely over the coming months. Okay, you've been listening to the Devils in Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. David, are you looking forward to the rugby this weekend? Looking forward to a Wallabies victory. That's what you're asking me. <laughs> Fingers <laughs> yeah, crossed, hopefully. We'll but uh, yeah, it's, um, I'm sure that you are. Uh, yeah, so yeah, it's been a long time coming um, and three test series. Uh, I'm, I just can't, uh, I can't wait, obviously. A uh, big occasion in in uh, for for the Colgan family household, uh, Ireland playing Australia. So um, we'll uh, we'll be looking forward to it. Um, good luck to the all, all of the Australians, but go Ireland. Um, so uh, um, look, the show's been produced by Rick Salter. Um, our guest this week has been Christina Clifton, a senior economist at the Commonwealth Bank. Christina, great to have you on the show. Thanks yeah, very thank much. Thank you for having me. I've uh, been here as always, with David Scott. Been a pleasure as always. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. We're on Twitter at B-I-A-U-S. The show's on iTunes where you can find it under Devil's Details or your preferred podcasting platform of choice. We'll catch you next time.